When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At the well, same look, time you had the president last week say what happened in the, what passed in the House was sad. Um, do you need to win him over or Republicans in the House? No, I don't really think that that accurately reflects uh, the president's sentiment about the House health care bill. I think that was um, some kind of a misinterpretation of, of, of a private meeting. I hope that we will receive uh, the draft legislation soon. I'm told that it exists. If you're frustrated by the lack of transparency in this process, I share your frustration. I just haven't been able to see it yet. And as far as I know, the overwhelming majority of my colleagues haven't been able to see it either. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the man whose budget calls for a reduction in federal housing aid, except, of course, for a subsidy that pays him millions as a private landlord. Donald Trump. On today's show, we're talking about how Washington actually works. Operations, ops, black ops, and kabuki, and backrooms, and talking points, and winning, basically. We're not talking about right and wrong, not talking about ethics and soft subjects like that. We're talking about what politicians and operatives in Washington actually think about power. And our focus is healthcare. And the senators who are sitting in that speakeasy with a hidden door that looks like a bookcase and deciding our fates. Namely, how many of us to deprive of health care? How many of us to gouge with high premiums? And how many of us have pre-existing conditions like eczema or tension headaches that evidently disqualify us from basic decency on the part of our government? We're going to talk about all this with an actual Republican operative. His name is Mark Ross. But first... In non-Trump news, the actor Daniel Day-Lewis announced his retirement from acting yesterday. We were bereft that we're never going to see this great actor portray our current president with the sensitivity he brought to his portrayal of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, in the movie Lincoln. Just to get a taste of what he might have done, though, we were able to convince Mr. Day-Lewis to read some memorable Trump quotes as Abraham Lincoln this is exclusive to Trumpcast. He made a recommendation. He's highly respected, very good guy, very smart guy. Uh, the Democrats like him. The Republicans like him. Uh, he made a recommendation. 
But regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey, knowing there was no good time to do it. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish, the Second Amendment. Uh, by the way, and if she gets to pick, if she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although, the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. No, no, Nancy, no, this was some time ago. I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. I took her out furniture shopping. I moved on her like a bitch. But I couldn't get there. She does have a very nice figure. I've said, if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. Today's sketch was written by Steve Waltine and Kate James and performed by Steve Waltine. Mark, welcome to Trumpcast. You're here at last. I know. I'm so excited. This is, uh, this is amazing. Thanks for having me. So let's just put something out there. You are a proud creature of the wetlands. I'm not going to say swamp. And I mean, no disrespect. <laughs> you, you combine the instincts of an alligator with the absolute lovableness of a turtle. I love it. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm mere blocks from the uh, Potomac River, and uh, I reside proudly five miles from the White House. So, yeah. Fantastic. Um, you teach about globalization and American politics at George Washington University, and you've also run fundraising and communication for political campaigns, many for the highest offices in the United States. So let's just get this straight. Who are we talking about? Which campaigns have you helped on? So I worked for Steve Forbes which was a great, great experience. Uh, that was part of the 2000 race. Uh, did a lot of volunteer work for the Bush, the George W. Bush era. And uh, I spent months helping Sarah Palin and John McCain. In addition, I also spent some quality time on Capitol Hill with Tom DeLay, which many people know as the hammer when he was the uh, majority whip. So you live among and work among sort of rank-and-file Republicans, people. Is it okay to call them operatives? Sure, yeah, that's like the cool name, the operatives, politicos, okay. uh, lobbyists. I, yeah, for I, sure. I love it. Okay, operatives, lobbyists, politicos. Was there talk among you all about who was going to go Trump and who was going to decline? I think we're saying, like, I would like to think that I hang out with a fairly professional class of Republicans, for lack of a better word, people that have worked on numerous campaigns, doing this for decades, have a lot of experience, not only understand politics, but also policy, which is equally important. Yeah. And in my circle of friends, there was nobody that was on the Trump train from very early on. And I think that you can even see it reflected now. I mean, the quality of staff and even the B and C level around the president is subpar, and he clearly doesn't have the best people surrounding him, and it's certainly impacting his agenda. In my mind, it's only going to get worse. I mean, the amount of talent you need to advance legislation and determination 
is even difficult with the best staff in the world, let alone, you know, being C-level staff. So let's talk about legislation that is underway somewhere. I picture the Senate Republicans working on health care in their back room. Everyone calls seems to call it a back room with uh, cigars playing Texas Hold'em or maybe candy corn, like in a sitcom writer's room. My last yeah, guess is uh, yeah. that my last guess is that there's uh, blow and lap dancers. I mean, I would seriously believe anything. I had this fantasy that one of the dancers like had this amazing heart of gold and brilliance about policy, and she was like bringing around that cotton guy or someone with her wise ideas <laughs> about uh, insurance coverage and premiums. But maybe they're just sitting there talking about healthcare. What do you think that back room is like? Well, I think the back room is not nearly as sexy, not nearly as fun. It is more uh, Wichita, Kansas than it is Miami, Florida. Got it. Um, the Senate is a very regal, serious place. Um, when you visit the Capitol, when you go from the House side to the Senate side, even physically, the, the walls in the Senate are more ornate and the structure and the artwork is better, whereas the, uh, the stuff in the House is just like ramshackle, almost like college dormitory. Hmm. Where when you get to the Senate, it's very fancy and encrusted with gold and all kinds of fun stuff. So just the nature of the environment, it's a very serious place, very hushed tones. Um, but there's definitely uh, back rooms. My understanding, there is a working group of 13 people. There's probably 10 or 12 senior staffers working on this legislation. But I would have to say like, as a, that is working in stealth, I think is a really good talking point yeah. for the, uh, the Democrat Party. But, you know, I think in reality, this is pretty out there. I mean, we're obviously talking about this if you open... Any major newspapers actually still get the newspaper, by the way. I flipped through a few today, and there are, you know, two or three stories in each of them about what's happening on the health care bill. And, you know, health care in this country has been debated on for decades, if not even mo- very intensively in the last 10 years. So I do think McConnell is right that the debate is happening, and soon enough this bill is going to come out. You know, I don't think there's going to be any real surprises what the Republicans are trying to do. But the Democrats will still have plenty of opportunities to amend the bill as they see fit. Even one group I saw wants to have the uh, Democrats introduce 40,000 amendments and just drag this thing out as long as possible. So we'll see what happens. I think it's a good talking point, but it's not it's not the most accurate statement. So, OK, OK, maybe we've had this long term health care debate and nothing's going to change because of this. But this is a level of of secrecy that we have not yet seen. And even people like your man McCain have been complaining about these negotiations, uh, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere. How do you how do you completely defend this process? I mean, this is this has gotten a bit absurd. Well, the backrooming I mean, secrecy by who? I mean, obviously you're far more educated on the English language than I ever will be. So you know, I don't know what the definition of secrecy is, right? I'm pulling a Bill Clinton, so <laughs> it's hard to say, right? But I mean, certainly there's been uh, talk. I mean, there's certainly talking about that small majority. I mean, McCain's had a pro- like just from press reports. McCain's had a problem. Ron Paul's had a problem, uh, Susan Collins, Capitol out of West Virginia, Portman, uh, Murkowski. Um, so what, it may be secret in the sense it's not on C-SPAN, right? It's not on, there's no hearings, public hearings, but I can guarantee you uh, there's no secrecy between staff. Like there's stuff Murkowski wants in this bill. Uh, the opioid crisis and funding that Portman wants to see corrected in Capitol out of West Virginia. There's no secret talks. I mean, it may not be public in the sense of an open hearing, but I can guarantee you that senators are speaking to senators. Governors are calling their senators. Um, Governors have an amazing amount of power to shape this stuff. So the debate is happening. It just might not be under the the lights of C-SPAN or an open hearing. But I would say that it's definitely out there. And as soon as this bill's unleashed, 
right, on the public, uh, whether it's tomorrow or Friday, um, it's going to be pretty transparent. So I'm going to take your word for it. I do like that you know these figures so well that you know what some of what their their interests are and what they might be bringing to the table. Can you you've said you talked about the opioid crisis. Is there anything else that you know is being talked about at the table? Yeah, it's uh, Planned Parenthood's been an issue uh, for Murkowski. I think that there's even you, some Republicans like there's all those ardent ahead. feminists in there, right? So that's got to be a, a very, very tense debate. Yeah, I think like I don't know if you're being <laughs> flippant, but I think Susan Collins and Murkowski. I mean, these are pretty interesting, powerful women. Um, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Feminism has a wide uh, definition. Oh, is that right? Um, Almost like secrecy. But um, I would say that uh, getting back to, like, you know, what are the special interests? The Senate, when you represent an entire state, you have a much larger constituency. Um, But I also say, like, there's uh, like Cruz and Corbin or Cornyn, Corbin, sorry, Cornyn from Texas. They both are maybe like saying they're not going to vote for it because it doesn't go far enough. Right. Mike Lee from Utah. It's like not conservative enough. Getting back to when you only have can lose two votes. If you lose the three votes, right, you can pick up one with Pence, uh, this whole game's over, and that's a disaster. So I don't think it's a very fun time, you know, from just a pure political exercise. It's a bit radioactive. So I think controlling as much as humanly possible, limiting access to the bill, keeping your caucus as close together as possible. What I'm trying to say, in the short term, this idea we're passing legislation is one thing, but in, in reality, it's not really going to solve the problem, whatever comes out of this. I, I think healthcare, long-term, as, as citizens, we really need to step back and figure out what we're doing. This idea that we're going to change healthcare every 10 years is really kind of frivolous and stupid, frankly. And it doesn't, it's almost like we're solving the last problem. We're not really addressing the entire ecosystem of healthcare. We're being led, frankly, by a bunch of 70-year-olds that are trying to fight the last war, as opposed to people of our generation that are trying to really think long-term about this. Where the the sort of cast of characters in the Trump administration is is fascinating, and we've gone through periods where we talk a lot about Steve Bannon or we talk a lot about Mike Pence. It's uh, Mitch McConnell's hour right now. What have been your interactions with him? What's your history with him, either, either as an observer or as, you know, someone who's rubbed elbows with him? I think it's, it's like, there's two Mitch McConnells. Like, there's the Mitch McConnell senator from Kentucky, but I think it's important for everybody to realize, like, when you're the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, you are arguably one of the most powerful people in the city. Like, if you're not the most powerful, you're like 1A. I mean, the power that Harry Reid had in that position and Bob Dole and people that have held that position, Tom Daschle, it's an immense amount of power because they, unlike the House, they literally control what gets on the floor. And to pass major legislation, it has to go through their office. McConnell was kind of built for this job. He's very much, to me, in the role of a Harry Reid. You know, for all the Democrats that don't like Mitch McConnell, there's a a long line of folks, Republicans, that didn't like Harry Reid and the way he managed the Senate. So I think what's important is the the job that he holds right now. You know, the saying you talked about when I I teach class and one of the things I tell my students is, you know, where you sit is where you stand, right? So if you're in a certain office, you're going to act a certain way, right? Because A, the office, the institution demands it, and also it changes your perspective immensely. And I think that's like a key component. Yeah. the Senate, by and large, you know, when you have two or three seat majority, it's really, it's, you're on eggshells, right? And I remember when I worked for Tom DeLay, he was the majority whip, and his job was to usher, you know, votes through the U.S. House of Representatives. You need 218 votes. And the biggest fear anytime any leadership is losing control of the floor, either chamber, and it's really raw politics. And when you have a smaller majority, you know, you can be, really be held hostage by your own caucus. I mean, and sometimes you want, you want a majority. You don't want too big of a majority, 
because then you have problems. You certainly don't want too small of a majority. And I think Mitch McConnell finds him in the too small of a majority position right now. And I, but I do think he has the wherewithal and temperament to be a good majority leader, regardless if you agree with his politics, but just as a steward of managing the floor. He's a very well-equipped character to handle that. I mean, he's, you know, commonly represented, I think, fairly accurately as an obstructionist by nature. Obstructionism is not, like, coded necessarily bad or good. It can be a strategy. Can you contrast that with Harry Reid's style, just so we get a sense of what the what a responsible use of the office might be or a controversial use? Well, yeah, I'd say, like, the adjective you would use for McConnell's obstructionist, right? The adjective I would use for <laughs> Reed might be Dirty Harry, right? That he's he, he too is sneaky and kind of a wily character from the uh, the deserts of Nevada. So once again, I think it's really key, like that job in and of itself, being in the Senate, inherently you're an obstructionist. Your term is longer, you have a bigger you know, sphere of influence that is you're representing an entire state, multiple constituencies, whereas you're in the House, very parochial, very much more homogeneous kind of constituency, Right. Inherently, the Senate is designed to be obstructionist, right? Uh, on top of the fact that you're the majority leader, it only becomes more uh, intense. So I just think the nature of the body itself lends itself to slowing the process down, using arcane rules. Even yesterday, you know, Senator Schumer from New York and the Democrats found other, you know, random parliamentary procedure rules to delay hearings in the, in the Senate just to slow down the process and really kind of poke the Republicans. So there's all these, you know, old school rabbit rules of order and parliamentary procedures in the Senate that exist that nobody really understands except for a handful of people. But the body itself, getting back to that earlier point about where you sit is where you stand, yeah. um, it's kind of key to the nature of the body itself. And, you know, it's just, it's just part of the process you have to kind of muddle through. I want to I want you to wantonly speculate about some of your acquaintances uh, close to the president. Um, I'll give you one hint. Steve Bannon, who's probably not one to talk about weight issues, said that the reason he's out of sight is that he got fatter. That's Sean Spicer. What's going on with Sean Spicer just from from your vantage? He's in a horrible, dreadful position. Uh, Sean is actually a terribly talented person. He's been in this town for a long time, has a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle in the press corps, you know, really active in the community. Uh, I think he's in a really, really tough spot, and he's he's not really playing the character. He's he's taking on some other weird role, which I think is being induced by the nature of the Trump White House and the cast of characters. Can you imagine, like, a more, like I can't, I was, like, this Bannon thing about weight shaming. I mean, like, the stress being that is going along just within the lobbyists and the people that are worried about just, like, North Korea and foreign policy, plus this uh, work environment. I mean, it's just... Oh, come on. I'd eat my mad. feelings. I'd eat my feelings, too. I mean, we're all eating our feelings, even in the electorate. It's complete <laughs> it's complete madness. And for this stuff to leak out, it's just completely crazy. And what's interesting about these leaks and, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times, they get these stories with, like, you know, 20, 25 sources. I mean, it's just like they're, like, what's happening now, it's almost like cathartic. Like, there's plenty of people in the administration that are just leaking to anybody. Like, I'm sure their spouses and partners are just sick of hearing about how horrible their job is, and uh, they're finding solace and reporters and leaking all this stuff out. It's pretty, it's really shameful. It's ridiculous, frankly. You know, what I love about talking to you is that you have this sort of rail politic, like I've been around the block, and none of this seems apocalyptic to you. It makes me think of, um, I mean, <laughs> Trump is another another president. So it makes me think of the, um, one of the talking points from The Apprentice was, it's not personal, it's it's business. Do you are you really able to like go to sleep at night thinking 
we'll get through this one. It's not that different from George W. Bush or Clinton or any other presidents of our lifetime. We'll uh, we'll survive it. This is not a a paradigm shift in the way Washington works. I would works. say that, yeah, my thought, that's probably 80% of my thoughts. Um, you know, like every day he loses power, like he's eventually going to leave, either he's going to be asked to leave or, he's, you know, going to get voted out of office. And the longer you're in that office, you know, you have a, you have a sell by date. So that's reassuring. I think what uh, makes me nervous is that he just doesn't have the curiosity or temperament. And it's a big job. You know, the U.S. is, we're blessed in a lot of ways. And the world, you may hate the world and you may have a problem with internationalism, but the last 70 years have been fairly peaceful and prosperous across the planet. And a lot of that has to do with the responsibility that other countries have given us. So um, there's some stuff that gives me pause. It makes me nervous, but the amount of people that are working against his agenda, both professionally, both legally, both institutionally, is pretty immense. And I, I was telling somebody the other day, like, Trump could do all this stuff, whatever he's like proposed, right? But when you're at 30% job approval and you're slipping every day, and oh, by the way, your top five, six staffers are all lowering up, you know, because they're worried about this crazy Russian probe. Yep. I mean, this is a dreadful, dreadful situation. I mean, he's just not, it takes a lot of effort to get stuff done. And um, he's on the back foot. He's certainly not on the front foot. All right. Well, so I, sleep, I sleep good at night after I eat a pint of ice cream and, uh, you, me, and Sean Spicer. The, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> State of America. Um, all right. Well, let's go out for ice cream sometime if you're ever in New York. And thank you so much for being here, Mark. This was great. Thank you very much. And that's the show for today. Did you, did you like it? You know, if so, reach out to us on Twitter and, and tell us you liked it. You can follow us at RealTrumpCast to keep up with the latest from the Trumpcast team. That's at Real Trumpcast. And hey, have you listened to Isaac Chotner's new podcast, I Have to Ask? It's great. And Isaac is an awesome interviewer. You should check out the episodes with Chris Hayes and the Washington Post reporter, Ashley Parker. You can find I Have to Ask by going to slate.com slash ask. That's slate.com slash ask. I don't need to tell you guys, that's A-S-K. New episodes are posted every Thursday, so there's one out tomorrow. Check it out. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.